Why You'll Never Be a Rapper, a memoir mixtape by Josh What's-His-Name Lefkowitz, forward by Fonte Coleman. Chapter 22. There it goes. Unsure about what the next move was, but with a somewhat reinvigorated mojo, I continued to write songs the best way I knew how to. And as the cocky lyrics began to flow again, I made sure to concentrate on making them sound as relevant and commercial as I could. I collected beats from any producer I was still in contact with and often got referrals from other rappers and beat makers. This network of fellow music makers opened a treasure trove of beats which gave me constant inspiration. I began collaborating with younger beatsmiths who had yet to be negatively influenced by the inevitable dead ends and disappointments that this life yielded. In other words, they hadn't reached the curmudgeon mindset that I was quickly approaching and I fed off their youthful energy. They provided new surfaces for my lyrics to skate on and a fresh perspective for me to write from. Rue and I decided that we would really need to go for it with a commercial single that would make an even bigger, more relevant statement than any of our previous releases. If I dug deep enough, I could find it in one of my new young collaborators. On a trip back home to the Bull City, I made it a point to connect with K Slack. Keith had provided a few beats for me along the way and was proving to be a worthy accomplice. I showed up at Slack's mother's apartment and was greeted at the door by his child. I didn't even know he had one. He was always a man of few words, but the resemblance was frightening. What's up, little Slack? I said to him before he giggled and ran off, further authenticating the apple not falling from the tree theory. Once in his makeshift studio, Slack spoke to me without taking his eyes off the monitor. Yo, so I made you something while you were on the way over here. Just then I heard cartoon-like voices speaking in a manner that was barely translatable. I couldn't imagine where this was going until the voices finally began to speak in English. Somebody order this to go? One of them said. No, the other replied. Well, there it goes. Just then I heard a bass hit coupled with a powerful snare and a sharp note from a trumpet. As it hit four more times, my eyes lit up and the sound sent me into a trance. On the fifth hit, the beat started and the feeling that I got from the first note was amplified. I scrunched up my face and began to nod my head as if possessed. It was as if everything around me had suddenly vanished and it was just me and that beat in a world apart. I noticed that the fourth measure was unfinished, so I directed slack on how the bar should sound to make it be more complete and less monotonous. With a few clicks of the mouse, the beat sounded exactly like I had envisioned it in my head and I went back to that magical place I had visited just seconds before. There I sat, alone with that beat, and eventually a melody came into my head. I started to hum to myself. There it goes. There it goes. I was on to something. I could feel it. I came out of my musical coma and looked over at Slack, who, silent as ever, was smiling and nodding in approval. Without wasting time listening to other beats, I left Slack's house with a copy and rode around Durham for a few hours with the beat on repeat. I had no clue where I was going, but the beat propelled me to keep driving and vibing. I was lost in my own world. This was always the magic for me, the thing that made me feel connected to music. The beat had a tempo similar to Stay Fly, a record by 3-6 Mafia popular at the time, which, coincidentally, I had already used in a previous freestyle. 
It had a slower feel but had a fast hi-hat cymbal that hit twice on every beat and commanded a double-time flow that had become increasingly popular along with the southern rappers responsible for bringing it to the forefront of hip-hop. Because it felt the same, I gave it a try over Slack's beat and it fit as if it was supposed to. I knew I had a hit on my hands and couldn't wait to tell Rue. I arrived back home in Brooklyn a few nights later. From the second I started feverishly crafting the song, I began texting Rue as fast as I could to express how excited I was. He was apprehensive, but he invited me up to his apartment to let him hear it. He was in one of his hermit-like moods, but I didn't let his vibe kill mine. I put the beat on his $100 stereo and began to do my verse along with the chorus I'd come up with. You looking for a joint to get it popping, there it go. Something that bumps and keep the speakers knocking, there it go. All in your chest and in your trunk is rocking, there it go. My nine to fivers and my hustlers clocking, there it go. You looking for a joint to get it popping, there it go. Something that bumps and keep the speakers knocking, there it go. All in your chest and in your trunk is rocking, there it go. My nine to fivers and my hustlers clocking, there it go. I'm on cloud nine, fantasizing about how huge this song was going to be and speaking in streams of consciousness with hopes of him joining me in the land of make-believe. Baru was nonchalant at best. Yeah, that's dope. I like it. Finish it up and we'll see what's what. I couldn't understand what was going on in his head, but I chalked it up to personal issues. I knew that the faster I could write another verse, the quicker I could get Ru on board the There It Goes train. So I busted my ass to write it and ignored anything that would make me lose focus. I was never the fastest writer, but when I focused, I could be fairly prolific. And for this song, I had bigger plans than just a new single. A few weeks prior, I received a call from an ex-girlfriend who had been doing some side work as a makeup artist on independent film shoots. A company that she had done a few jobs with had expressed interest in shooting music videos, but needed material for their reel. They said that they were looking for an artist who was serious and who would allow them to write, film, and produce a music video free of charge, provided they had plans of actually doing something with it. All we needed was the song. With the potential to shoot a video as fuel, I finished There It Goes and booked studio time to record it. I liked the song so much that I had memorized it and did only a second take in the studio just to see if there was any chance that I could outdo my first one. The song was done and mixed in less than two hours and I knew I had something. Rue timed his arrival at the studio so perfectly that it seemed scripted. The session was done and I was eating a turkey hero, basking in my glory. And as soon as I saw Rue's face, I didn't even walk over to greet him. Stop, I yelled. He stared at me confused. You ready? I said with a sinister smile. At that moment, the beat came in just like it did the first time I heard it in K-Slack's little bedroom. Before the actual melody of the beat started, I could see Rue's face start to scrunch up. That was a good sign. Then his head began rocking up and down like his neck was attempting to balance a 100-pound bowling ball. As the beat started rocking, I bounced around the studio like a middleweight prize fighter, mouthing the chorus, almost performing it for him so he could picture the visuals. He knew that everything we had discussed was manifesting in front of him and he couldn't help but say, there it goes, as each line of the chorus played. Rue was sold. He shook his head and made breathy noises like, whew, before he said what was really on his mind. That's definitely the joint for the video, Holmes. Yes, I told him. That's what I've been trying to tell you. And now it was time to make it happen. We settled on a date in April of 2006 for the shoot, and with the help of Eric, 
Rob and Marcos from the film crew, we figured out a mixture of different locations and scenarios. They pitched us on shooting it in California, but we told them it was NC or nothing and they agreed. The crew paid for their own hotel rooms. Rue and I just had to get them from place to place. I rented a minivan and let them have it after picking them up from RDU and introducing them to Dillard's Barbecue. We began shooting the very first day. We drove around Durham and got footage of different neighborhoods and locations. Tree-lined blocks, old churches, Dillard's Barbecue, the Duke Chapel, kids walking shirtless with pit bulls, and random buildings that looked like what the crew felt the city did, Southern. We moved on to the random backdrops I had in my head, which I thought would look cool in a video. I came equipped with as much clothing as I could to let the world know I had style. This would be important in establishing who What's-His-Name was and what Jimmy Joshua represented as a brand. I rock multicolored vapes and matching Durham shirts that I made on Zazzle, along with 919 hats I bought locally. I felt good about my wardrobe and happy I could dress like a star for my visual debut. Aside from the clothing I would have purchased anyway, the first day of the shoot cost me 35 cents, the amount charged to enter the parking garage downtown where we shot from the top floor. Day two was a little bit more Hollywood. The director, Eric, had rented a soundstage in a town called Yanceyville that I had never heard of. The crew set up three cameras, a circle of lights, and a makeshift stage for a performance shot. They had gone over a few details with Rue, but I didn't bother to inquire because I trusted his judgment. Plus, I was so excited that I didn't care about the details, or I thought I did. Rue grabbed me to say that he had some exciting news, a surprise from when he was in Greensboro at the mall while we were shooting the B-roll. He was beside himself. Okay, so you were at the mall. Would you buy me some cologne? I said laughing. No, idiot, even better. Okay, you gonna tell me? I got us some cars. Meaning? For the video, I got us some old schools. I didn't get it. I saw some cars parked in the parking lot, so I left a note about the video shoot and a copy of 2.1 on their windshield and told them to call me, and they did. So what does that mean? This was making me nervous. Well, the dude that called has a money green joint, and he told me his man got the orange one. They're gonna meet us out here, it's gonna look so hot. They're bringing their cars to Yanceyville? I asked, thinking about what this would do for my image. Yes, sir, how hot is that? I was silent. Trust me, it's gonna be hot. I knew you'd be a little whatever about it, so that's why I didn't tell you. But listen, you know I'd never do anything that I thought was gonna look whack. Mostly I trusted him, but I felt uneasy about what I thought was a predictable move. 2005 was the year of the donk, or old school car with rims and a new paint job. Artists like Mike Jones and Paul Wall were the hottest rappers out that year, and their Texas sound, heavily influenced by car culture, was dominating the airwaves and inviting copycats in video and song. The main ingredients of a visual were donks, scantily clad women, jewelry, and grills, aka gold or platinum teeth. I had prided myself on trying to be just commercial enough to appeal to the brainless music robots that listen to the radio, but also lyrical, conceptual, and original enough for the real hip-hop heads. I was walking a very thin line, and I feared that once I crossed it, I'd never be taken seriously as an artist again. At that moment, though, I had no time to think it through and to stop analyzing and overanalyzing. I figured, fuck it. If this is what you want to do with your life, then you're going to have to make some sacrifices. If having these cars in the video will make a difference in how labels perceive you, then that's what you have to do. All I could do is work with what I had, and the fact is, I was from the South. Maybe it was time for me to embrace it, especially since the South had become the in place to be from. 
The truth was that being a white rapper never exactly worked in my favor. For once, I genuinely possessed something that would. Though my speaking voice and the beats that I gravitated towards didn't sound particularly Southern, I was technically a Southern rapper. That day, I decided to shut my mouth for the sake of making it. It helped that, when I reviewed various shots of me through the camera's small screen, the ones of me with cars as the backdrop actually looked pretty cool. I wasn't sure how it would be perceived by the hip-hop heads, but I didn't care. Besides, they weren't going to pay my rent and fund my sneaker addiction. As the shoot continued, the film crew satiated my need for artistic creativity with some interesting setups. I was particularly pleased with a close-up they shot of my face through an illuminated W. I was also pretty thrilled with a scene shot amidst a circle of periodic strobe lights that had been set up in a circle. As they flashed in random succession, it created an interesting lighting effect which played well with my swagger. That may be the only scene I can stomach when I see it today. Once the director felt like he had what he needed, he told me to take five and get my makeup touched up and meet him by the stage with Rue. Because I stayed mostly ignorant about the storyboarding process of the shoot, I couldn't imagine why we'd need a stage for anything. My instinct told me that it didn't fit, but I was down to be a sport and give it a try. Once the mini break was done, I got another surprise. Rue had brought two strippers to the shoot. I wasn't sure where they were going to fit in. I figured he just wanted to sleep with them. But on stage, I learned that they were filling a role that was scripted from the beginning. The director dimmed the lights and had Rue and me, and the two dancers, get up on stage in a boy-girl, boy-girl arrangement, similar to my eighth grade dance. While they filmed, a machine blew smoke from below. Now I felt increasingly uncomfortable, but to keep with my lifetime anti-conflict stance, I said nothing. Maybe they'll edit this part out, I thought, and hoped. I thought my discomfort had to be evident in my performance, but I got through it. As if my video was from a book entitled, Rap Video for Dummies, day three was a club scene. We had yet to solidify a location to shoot in, and I secretly hoped that it wouldn't pan out. Baru's persistence prevailed once again, and he was able to lock down a club in Greensboro for next to nothing. He was also able to get word to the on-air DJs at 102 Jams, who announced on the radio that we were shooting at a club on High Point Road, just steps from Four Seasons Mall. By the time we got there, there was a handful of people I had invited, some who drove down all the way from Maryland. But they were outnumbered by others who packed a parking lot there just to get their shot at being in a rap video. It felt wrong, but what was a club scene without a packed club? Take a moment to imagine what shots you'd expect from a stereotypical rap video club scene. If you guessed a performance shot, a VIP shot, crowd pan, scantily clad women rubbing my face, thugs, and cars, then you too could have written the treatment. I tried to feel excited, but I was uncomfortable. I attempted to suppress it, but I couldn't. After we wrapped that day, Rue and I went out for drinks with our friends and a few of the video, I mean young ladies from the club scene. I probably should have been scanning the crowd for groupies, but all I could feel was that I was in the wrong place with the wrong people. That may have been the most confusing part. This was quintessential rap shit, was that not exactly the life I strive for? The last day of shooting took place in High Point, Rue's hometown. Since most of what was to be shot was Rue getting his hair cut, I didn't need to be there early that morning. I figured the shoot had wound down and that my job was done. I hoped that I wouldn't even be on camera that day, so I didn't shave or plan out an elaborate fashion ensemble that illustrated my propensity for the finest in streetwear. I dressed simply and inconspicuously, which also fit my mood. 
I didn't feel like being the star anymore. As I drove to the shoot in Zach's old five-speed pickup truck, I envisioned pulling up to an empty parking lot. I figured I'd walk into the barbershop to something small and simple. But when I arrived, I saw a crowd of people rivaling the club shoot. The parking lot was inundated with hoochies and $10 dresses, enough old school cars to fill an issue of Dunk magazine, and crowds of people I'd never seen in my life. This was the antithesis of what I wanted to portray. Jimmy Joshua was supposed to be selling a lifestyle that was cool, but understated and exclusive, not predictable and corny. I realized that no one there knew who I was, and oddly, that gave me great comfort. I walked through the crowd and into the shop. Rue was positioned in the barber chair with a cape around his neck. As the cameras rolled, the barber pretended to shape up his hairline. I didn't understand why this was part of the video, but I stood there quietly, feeling like an outsider. It wasn't even my show anymore. I was an extra in my own video. The only thing that made sense was that my role matched exactly how I was feeling. Between takes, I approached Rue and made my presence known. How's it going in here? I said calmly. Oh man, it's dope. Did you see all the people outside? Rue replied excitedly. Yeah, I saw them. Where'd everybody come from? I just told a bunch of people who told a bunch of people and everybody showed up, Rue said, seeming proud of his work. I stood there for a few more takes while the film crew finished their duties inside and left the building. A giant order of Bojangles showed up and everyone flocked to it like vultures. You ordered this? I asked Rue. Yeah, I figured we'd feed everybody, he said. I guessed it was the right thing to do, but of course, I started to worry about how much all of our here and there weekend expenses were starting to cost us. As I stood by myself eating a biscuit, a few of the scantily clad extras came over to Rue and asked to take pictures. He ate it up and pointed me out, perhaps sensing that I wasn't as enthused about the scene as he was. Yo, this my boy what? This is the video for his song. The girl's faces lit up. Can we take a picture with you? One asked, probably hoping that our interaction would somehow lead to her being famous for doing nothing. I agreed and afterwards she introduced herself as Star. I doubted she had any discernible talent. Eventually, Eric came inside to grab some food and to let Ruin me know that he needed us for a shot he was setting up in the parking lot. I didn't think I was going to be any more shots, I told Rue anxiously. Nah, it's cool. I think you're just going to be in a car. I didn't understand. Rue assured me that it would be quick and told me to follow him. Because the barbershop's windows were blacked out with construction paper, I hadn't been able to see what was going on outside. When I exited the shop, it looked like what I can only describe as every Southern rap video in 2005. There were dunks set up in a row with the video hose draped over them, their rims shining like they were made out of mirrors. There was a crowd of thugs that looked like they came from a small town, wearing oversized jeans and wife beaters. One wore a white pleather bulletproof vest with no shirt underneath. Who the fuck were these people and why were they in my video? As I made my way through the crowd, Eric ushered me to the same money green vehicle that was on set in Yanceyville. So yo, he told me, you're gonna be driving and Rue's gonna be riding shotgun. We're just gonna shoot this setup for a few seconds, give you the cue, and then you're gonna drive up. Cool? No, not cool. But after staring at Eric with a look that I know he had to have caught the meaning of, I looked down and said, okay. One shooting rap, Rue invited me back to High Point to hang out and have a cookout with his boys. Come on, dog," one of his friends said, just minutes after lifting up his wife beater to reveal a colostomy bag and explaining that he had just been shot. Nah, I'm good, man. I'm tired. I'm gonna go back to Durham. I said my goodbyes and hopped in Zach's truck. I kept the radio off because I didn't much feel like hearing music, especially not the kind that the radio played. I felt confused. 
For the past few days, I had shot my video, mine, for my song, but it didn't feel like it. I got to lead the life of a real rapper. There were fans, sort of groupies, cameras and lights, and I was the star. I was in North Carolina, my home state, for the sole purpose of shooting the video. The estimated out-of-pocket cost would have been close to $20,000. It was 2005, before you could shoot a whole video on your iPhone and then edit it on your MacBook. It was a big deal, but I wasn't excited about it. I couldn't exactly wrap my head around why I was feeling the way I did. I knew one thing, I felt incredibly lonely and couldn't get out of my head. I sat there silently in the front seat of that old white pickup truck, shifting the worn out gears to keep up with traffic. There was no AC, so the manual roll-up windows were down on both sides. The humid North Carolina air blew hard against my face, causing me to squint my eyes, which had welled up with tears from the emotions I was experiencing and trying to fathom. As I drove back to the city where I spent the first 24 years of my life, all I could focus on was that it no longer felt like home. I had been living in New York City for nearly four years and my connection to North Carolina had dissipated. I had only moved to New York to get a record deal and make it as an artist, but that seemed like it was never going to happen. I had left behind everything I had known and become accustomed to. Now I knew nothing. I had no connection to Durham, yet no real connection to New York. Sure, I liked tall buildings and cool shit, but it wasn't like my move to New York had yielded any stability. And I sure as shit hadn't accomplished anything. I was already questioning my purpose, and on top of it all, I felt like I had no home. My leap of faith was starting to seem like a stumble. Try as I might to pinpoint it, there was nothing substantial enough in my life to refute this onslaught of negativity and confusion. I should have been happy that day. I wanted to be a rapper. I wanted to make videos. I wanted attention and to be the star of the show. And I always wanted to go back to Durham looking like I had made it in the music industry. But I wasn't happy. Worse, these very things didn't make me happy. And I couldn't figure out why.